Happy Advent, Chapel Hill. That is such a a pathetic response to your enthusiastic pastor's greeting. Happy Advent, Chapel Hill. (laughs) Thank you so much. Uh, One other reminder for your Advent season, if you would like to pick up an Advent um, prayer guide, you'll find it in the Connect Center back there. Uh, Many of you have really appreciated the prayer guide that we've been using this year of prayer, and this will take us through the season of Advent. Hopefully you'll have better luck lighting your candles around your Advent table than we apparently are having. The the Catholics would be disgusted with us. We can't keep one dang candle lit. Uh, So I guess we pray, you know, send us your light, and the Lord says, nah, I don't think so. Not right now. We're going to wait, which is the theme of the morning, so it seems perfect. Welcome, anyway, to Advent. It's hard to believe that five weeks from yesterday, we will have completed our five Christmas Eve services. And because it falls on a Saturday, we're going to do a little different. The early services will be 9 and 10.45 in the morning, and then the evening services will be 6, 7.30, and 9 o'clock. And, uh, and then we'll gather uh, for Christmas Day at 10 o'clock in pajamas and bringing our best gifts. So it'll be great. But back to Christmas Eve. Uh, that's a, a favorite of so many of us. Uh, thousands of people are going to come and we will share at every one of the services in some of the same rituals. We will, uh, we will sing Silent Night. We will light candles together as we are singing Silent Night and all the, the house lights will come down. And of course, then we'll blow out our lights, all of us, except for the candle rebel who sits up there and uh, is going to be, I'm not going to blow out my light and, you know, till the very end. And then I will come uh, back up and I will relight, hopefully more successfully, the uh, Christ candle and then pronounce these words that we have come to know so well from John chapter 1. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It's a wonderful image, isn't it? Uh, Darkness and light. It's an image of Christmas, that moment in history when finally the Savior blazed onto the scene. We look back at it and it seems uh, great and exciting, but honestly, it was a very long and painful waiting process for that Savior to come. We'd had glimpses of his arrival, even in the first parts of Genesis, where we uh, looked at last year, we remember we were talking about the scarlet thread of how glimpses of this promised Messiah, the Savior who was going to come to us, but it was long time coming. It was a lot of pain, a lot of disappointment, a lot of expectation, exile even, and brokenness, it was a lot of darkness. Advent is a time of darkness as well as light, which is okay, actually, because you've got to have the darkness to reveal the light. You can't appreciate the beauty, the brilliance of light, unless you have darkness. Um, this morning, I got up for my normal walk to the newspaper tube, 1.2 miles. It was dark when I got up, and so I put a little light on my the bill of my cap. Now, if you were to see that light during the daytime, you'd hardly notice it. It is a pathetic little thing. But I'm going to tell you, in the middle of that darkness, that little light shines bright. It is brilliant. You need darkness to really see the light. And, uh, and that's what Advent is about. Advent is not just an extension of the shopping season. Advent for believers is an opportunity for us to prepare, to enter into the darkness of history, to remember what it was like to be longing for the coming of the Messiah, to be eager, to be anticipating his arrival, uh, and finally then to have it burst onto the scene in the blaze of light that took place 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. So Advent is about darkness into which will burst the inextinguishable light. 
So this year, that's our theme, Send Us Your Light. And we're going to pause even more than usual. We're going to pause in Advent to really uh, enter into the darkness before the, the light of dawn. And we're just not going to jump too quickly. And for one reason, is it's, uh, it's more exciting. You know, it's, there's something exciting about the anticipation that comes. It's kind of like the darkness that settles in over the movie theater before then the main attraction finally appears on the screen. You're, you're eager and you're leaning in. There's another reason for us to enter into the darkness of the Advent season before the dawn, and that is that for many here, it's a reality for them. Despite the, the, the Christmas trees and, oh, dare I say that, Christmas trees, yes, the Christmas trees and uh, the parties and the lights and the decor and all of the rest. The fact is that it, this is a very hard time for many, very lonely, very hard time. Uh, you may hear, tis the season to be jolly, but the fact is you don't feel very jolly and so you kind of grit your teeth and, and go through it. It's a reality for many of us and as part of our body, we're going to acknowledge that. So, uh, you might find it comforting to know that you're in good, in good company. Because when we look to our church fathers, our ancient fathers going back thousands of years, like King David, for instance, we discover that he too was someone who wasn't always jolly, who in fact went through hard times. And the, the, t- those times for our benefit have been captured in prayers that we call the Psalms. And so we have a chance to discover what it means to pray in darkness while you're still waiting for the light. What it means to pray when you feel forsaken. What it means to pray when you feel depressed. And what it means to pray when you are waiting in the darkness, longing for the light. You know the light is coming. And so that's what we're going to be doing in these coming weeks. We're going to be talking today about what it means to wait. Cindy and I, a couple of weeks ago, flew back from a wonderful uh, birthday getaway. It was a long flight, and it was made longer by the fact that we were seated in those chairs that do not recline, you know, the ones that you're sitting like this the whole time, feel like a Jewish prayer, you know, (laughs) the whole time. Um, And so I was quite eager for uh, the flight to end, and when we were making our final approach to SeaTac from the north, and we saw the Space Needle, and we saw the great wheel on the the dock there, uh, I was quite excited. And we were coming in, and uh, we were only hundreds of feet, literally hundreds of feet off the ground at SeaTac, when suddenly the pilot firewalled the throttles, the plane began to climb again, and went sharply to the right. Now that got my attention. <laughs> Suddenly everyone is, you know, they're pulling out that card that they never read. Okay, what, what is this? Where is that exit row? Yeah. Uh, and so we, we, we began that turn around. And I was already eager and waiting and ready to land. And, and it seemed like that next time around the airport was just interminable. We took another one long loop back north again, came around, and was, oh, come on. And once again, we passed the Space Needle. Once again, we passed the Great Wheel. Once again, we were 300 feet above the runway. And we landed. So that was good. <laughs> Woo! Turns out that there was a little Sky West airplane that decided to play chicken with us the first time around. Sometimes it is good to wait. Sometimes it is good for us to wait. Although I'm not a great waiter. It is not one of my spiritual gifts. Those of you who know me well know that waiting is not what I was created for. Uh, I, I one time spent several, well, a lot of money uh, on a faster internet service so that that bar on the Netflix that indicates how quickly you're downloading something would go quicker. 
As it was, it was an interminable 20 seconds from the time it started to the time it ended. And that is unacceptable. And, uh, and so now we have something called on-demand. I like it being on-demand. It is very much the, the, the nature of our culture, isn't it? That we want things on-demand. The fact is, though, sometimes you can't get things on-demand. Sometimes you wait. Sometimes God wants you to wait. Turns out that sometimes waiting is one of the things that God uses to define and refine who we are. And so learning how to wait well is important, but I still don't like it. I don't like it. So on this first weekend of Advent, the season of waiting, the season of darkness before the light, I want us to listen to perhaps the most famous waiting prayer offered up by King David. Psalm 13 is the prayer. And uh, because apparently he didn't like waiting either. In fact, as you'll hear, there are some words that he repeats in the first part of that prayer. He repeats them again and again. That makes it very clear that he was sick and tired of waiting for the Lord to come through. Have you ever been there? Well, let's see what our big brother David can teach us about how to wait. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord... Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me. O Lord my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken, but I will trust in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the great word of the Lord. Let us pray. So Lord, for those of us who cry out how long and all of us have, we pray the patience to wait for your coming, trusting that you are steadfast and true and bounteous in your gifts. Would you meet us this day as we wait to hear from you. For Christ's sake. Amen. So he gives a not very subtle hint, Psalm, uh, David does at the beginning of his psalm that he's fed up with waiting. What's the phrase that he uses again and again? How long? Say it with me. How long? How long? How long? How long? Four times he says it. Uh, It is known, in fact, as the how long psalm. Although Charles Spurgeon, the great Victorian preacher, once said it ought to be called the howling psalm because we hear David howling out in his frustration to the Lord for not coming through in a timely fashion. How long, how long, how long? We don't know when David wrote this psalm, but he is obviously under attack by his enemies, which doesn't narrow it down very much because David was under attack all the time. Uh, as a as a young man, he was under attack 
by King Saul because Saul was jealous of him. As an old man, he was under attack by his own son, Absalom, because Absalom wanted to take over the throne. In between, he was under attack by the Philistines all the time. So the guy always had enemies. We don't know exactly then when this happened, but it was one of those seasons in his life when David said, I have had enough. He's waiting for the Lord to deliver him, and so far, God is a no-show. And the first verse of this fascinating little psalm actually captures this unremitting sense of suffering. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? English translators have had trouble with this weird sentence. And we have tried to fix it with punctuation. Uh, For instance, the version you just read goes, How long, O Lord? Question mark. Will you forget me forever? Question mark. That's ESV. The New Living Translation offers this. How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Forever? But in fact, the Hebrew has no break in the sentence at all. It is one long, run-on sentence. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Can you hear the frustration? The endless frustration. And it is as if David is praying, Listen, I am your anointed one. You are the one that chose me to be the king of your people, but you don't seem to be listening to me. And I'm just wondering, is this ever going to end? You seem to be hiding your face from me. I look like an idiot in front of my enemies, and my enemies look like heroes in front of me. So, i am just got to tell you, God, I'm tired of waiting for you to come through. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? I'm not even going to ask if any of you can relate to this. This is common to every age, isn't it? The toddler who wants his toy and wants it now, right? The teen who waits to be picked for a team or waits to be invited to the dance. The young woman who waits for a man of marriageable material. The young man who waits for the career for which he has prepared himself. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And then there's the even tougher and more poignant stories. The man who waits to hear if his wife is going to give him one more chance. The, uh, the, the, the woman who, uh, the couple who's waiting for the news uh, from their fertility treatment. Or the woman that I heard from just this last Thanksgiving day who's waiting two more excruciating months to find out if she has breast cancer or not. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? I understand a little bit about waiting in my own life. Uh, Early on in my ministry, I just longed to be married. I wanted to have a partner to share my life and my ministry with. But when I hit my 30th birthday, I was pretty sure that all my best days were behind me. And I was going to be a single bachelor pastor forever. And you laugh, but it was real to me at that time. In 2007, we ended up, our, the church and I ended up in a lawsuit that lasted for seven years. It was uh, the most excruciating season of my life hitherto. And then this last year, I waited four months to find out if I had prostate cancer. So I can empathize with 
all of us who have gone through seasons of waiting. We've all been there. So if you're a frustrated waiter at some point in your life, just raise your hand. Ever? Yeah. If you're not raising your hand, you're a liar. (laughs) Every one of us has cried out, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? So then, what does the prayer in the darkness of David, what does this prayer teach us about how we should pray in our seasons of, of waiting? I have loved this psalm. The more I have dug into it, it's just a short little thing, but it's, it's rich. And so here are three things that I find that I think are helpful. First is that we are invited to be authentic. We're invited to be authentic. This prayer is utterly, unvarnishedly transparent. David doesn't try to hide anything. He's tired of waiting for his deliverance. He's tired of his pain and his humiliation and his frustration. And he's not afraid to admit it. In fact, after the four, the four how longs, we come to what might be described as the come on, Lord, verse. Verse 3. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Do you hear that? He's almost shaking his fist at the Lord. Listen, I am waiting. It's like the heavens are brass. Will you throw me a bone, God? Say something. We are told that millennials value transparency. Well, you're not going to find anything much more transparent than King David's personal prayers. But here's what's fascinating. This isn't even King David's personal prayer. Any of you have your Bible open to the psalm? And if so, could someone shout out, what is the heading to the psalm, Psalm 13? To the what? Yeah, to the director of music. I think ESV says to the choir master, a psalm of David. To the choir master, a psalm of David. In other words, David wrote these words. He captured these words and then he gave them to his version of Margie Dickerson. He said, I got this late, great little ditty. I want you to put it to music and then we'll sing it together for the whole church. That must have been quite an anthem. You got the basses going, my life sucks, my life sucks, my life sucks. And the altars are going, why doesn't God ever answer my prayers? Sopranos, how long, how long? My life sucks. <laughs> it's a real pick-me-up song, isn't it? A real toe-tapper that you're going to go home humming. But that is the song that David instructed his choir master to prepare to sing as an anthem for his people. And talk about putting your raw feelings on display for the church to see. And the great news about that is when we are frustrated with God because of our long wait We have permission from King David to be authentic about it. It's the truth. It's how we feel. Let's not pretend that it's not so. I can't hide it from God anyhow. So tell him. And tell the life group that you are sharing your life with. Say, I am tired of waiting and I feel like God is never going to come through for me. Be authentic. What a relief it is that we don't have to pretend. That we don't have to kind of uh, keep God happy or protect his reputation by, by keeping our real feelings under wrap. So the first thing we're encouraged to do is to be authentic. The second insight I think this psalm gives us is this. Avoid bad advice. 
When you're in the waiting room, you would really like to get out of it. And so you're, tend to, you're going to tend, if God's being silent, to listen to other voices. And this doesn't immediately present itself, but it's actually found in verse 2. Where David says, how long must I take counsel in my soul? The, le- the literal Hebrew meaning of that is, how long must I layer plans? In other words, lay down plan upon plan. Come up with better human ideas, better advice, better plans to deal with this problem. This is a man who's going to think his way out of his problem. And of course, I completely relate to this one because I am the schemer. I am the thinker. I am the fixer. I can just ask my wife. I can spin out about a dozen scenarios and then I'll have 10 plans for how I'm going to fix every one of those scenarios. And I think David is right here too. David warns us though, when God is slow in answering you, don't be too quick to fill in the blank. Let me tell you another airplane story. November 11th, 1965, United Airlines Flight 227 was on final approach to Salt Lake City. But he was too high and coming in too fast. The, um, the tower called him and said, they suggested that he go around one more time. His own co-pilot suggested that he go around one more time. And we know that because we have the flight recordings. And, uh, and yet this pilot, he had his own ideas in mind, his own plans in mind. He was going to land it this time. And in fact, at one point, we have a recording of him telling the co-pilot to shut the F up because he was going to land this airplane. And he did land the airplane 340 feet short of the runway. And 43 people were killed, including my wife Cindy's father, on his 35th birthday, coming back early for a birthday party. All because this man had a plan in mind. All because he didn't want to wait. All because he did not want to go around one more time. Bad, bad advice. When God doesn't come through fast enough for you, when you want to circle the airport one more time, it is tempting to lay up plans of your own to fill in the blanks. Or to listen to the, the plans, well-meaning of others. You're tired of waiting, of saving yourself for the person God has prepared for you? Well, forget about it. Go ahead and sleep with your boyfriend. Everyone else does it. What's to wait for? Are you, uh, are you tired of, well, of waiting through the stress of college? Why don't just go ahead and numb the pain with alcohol? Numb the pain with weed. Everyone else is doing it. Tired of waiting for that advance in your company? Just backstab that person that's ahead of you on the ladder. Everyone else does it. Are you tired of waiting through a loveless, lousy marriage? Just get a divorce. Everyone else is doing it. Nobody likes to wait, especially if the waiting is painful or unremitting. It is easy to lay up your own plans. It is easy to listen to the plans of others, the advice of others. And that advice might bring you a temporary cessation in your waiting, but it could bring flaming catastrophe. And so David warns us, don't do it. As impatient as you might feel, wait for the Lord. So we have an invitation to be authentic. We have an invitation and encouragement not to take bad advice. And then he teaches us one other thing that I find fascinating. 
David teaches us to tell your feelings what to do. Tell your feelings what to do. We've seen in the earlier part of the psalm, it's okay to be honest, to, to say the truth about how you feel, to tell the Lord, to tell your, your church, it's okay. But at some point, you need to talk to your feelings. You need to tell them who's in charge. And we discover this in the last verse of the psalm. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I listened this week to one preacher preaching on Psalm 13. And he said that it's amazing how from verse 1 to verse 6, in six short verses, David moves from frustration to faith because he prays the right way. And by the time he lands in verse 6, all of that frustration he was feeling in the first part when he was howling at the Lord, it's all gone. And I say hogwash. Hogwash. David still feels at verse 6 just the way he felt at verse 1. He feels the same way, but he chooses to change his attitude. He tells his feelings what to do. And notice this is a head to a heart to a mouth progression. Head to heart to mouth. That's the order that you need to take. First of all, he remembers He remembers what has happened in his past. He remembers the trustworthiness of God. He remembers his steadfast love. He remembers how God has always been there for him and never let him down. Yes, right now he's in the waiting room. Right now he's mad at God for making him wait this long and not coming through. But he makes his head remember God's faithful dealings in the past. He remembers. Head. And then with that memory in hand, he tells his feelings what to do. He tells his heart to rejoice because of how God has saved him again and again. My heart shall rejoice. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. It's the head telling the heart what to do. And you you might say, well, you can't do that. Feelings are feelings. Feelings kind of control you. What you feel, you feel. You know, that is true. What you feel is what you feel. But take it from me. If you wallow in your feelings... If you coddle your depression, you only send yourself into a steeper tailspin. I know this from my own struggles with depression. I call it toilet bowling. (laughs) You begin to spin around faster and faster, and you're going down, 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 down the toilet. You can, in fact, tell your heart how to behave. You can... In fact, tell your heart to rejoice, as he says he will, to joy again and again. How do I know that? Because of the verse I'm encouraging you you to memorize from Philippians 4. What does Paul say? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Later on, he goes on to say, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication and so forth. Let your requests be needed. Rejoice in the Lord always. And we might say, well, do you recall when Paul told his Philippian friends that they ought to joy and joy and joy again in the Lord? What was his circumstance? He was in jail waiting for the executioner's sword. Surely he must have been frightened in that moment. And yet, he says, despite all of that, rejoice in the Lord, always. Let me say it again, in case you didn't get it the first time. Again, I say, rejoice. Head, 
to heart. And then finally to mouth. His last line is, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And so the final step in triumphant waiting comes when with our mouths we speak or we sing of what the head remembers and we've told our heart to celebrate. We trade whining for blessing. We speak of God's bounty. We praise thanksgiving for his faithfulness. We recite to our friends and our family not just our woes of our waiting, but the wonders of God's kindness and faithfulness, the bounty of his blessings. That is what we speak. How often we find reason to complain because we have to circle the airport one more time and we forget to speak words of praise and gratitude to and about a God who has poured out upon us every possible blessing in our lives. Words that we could speak that would go something like this, which I'm also encouraging you to memorize from Philippians 4, 8. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just... Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, what? Think about these things. We speak what we think, what we control our heart to rejoice about. Seems to me on this Thanksgiving weekend it's perfect, right? To remember that the Lord has dealt bountifully with us. Even if right now you are in a season of waiting and I look out and I see the faces of people who I know that's exactly where you are. Even if you're circling the airport, we choose to remember and we tell our hearts to rejoice and then we sing to the Lord for he has dealt bountifully with us.